It's the More Than Just Code podcast. In this week's episode, we discuss John Gruber's speculation about the prices of the Apple Watch, upgrading to iOS 8 and Cloud Drive, pre-ordering the iPhone 6 and which models we chose, and Aaron gets schooled on computer chip manufacture. Hey everybody, welcome to the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm My name is Tim Mitra, I'm here in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Yes. And I'm also joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And as usual, we have Mark Rubin, but today he's in L.A., California. How are you doing? I'm doing good. The place is just a construct, Tim. It doesn't really matter where we are. No, I know, but no, it, it, it matters from the point of view of perspective. Because I mean, some of the feedback we've gotten from people is they some people are actually learning stuff about Canada, eh, which is pretty good. All right, so uh, Aaron, why don't you lead off with uh, something very interesting I'm sure you've got. So this just came out yesterday, like the same day that the uh, iPhone 6 embargo broke. Uh, John Gruber has been busily spending the last week both reviewing those phones, but also putting together a very well-considered piece about the Apple Watch and what it means for the future of Apple. And the iPhone 6 reviews uh, from Gruber and from, oh, wait a sec, has Gruber published? Yes, he did. He did publish a piece, right? On the iPhone 6? Yeah, Actually, six. Just, yeah. just before you dive into that, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do know some people asked me what the embargo meant, so can you explain that to us? Sure. Okay, yeah, uh, I can do that. So basically when Apple provides reviewers with their review units, their iPhone 6s, they are asked to withhold publishing their reviews until a specific date and time. Uh, that happened to be 9 p.m. Eastern uh, yesterday, Tuesday the 16th. Turns out that uh, when 9 o'clock struck... Everybody who had a review to publish did so at that moment, and I had a lot to read. And I believe it was just prior to that time that Gruber published his watch piece. And when he did, he tweeted it and said, first one, and gave a link to the watch the watch piece. And then uh, some, I think it was early this morning, actually, he published the iPhone review, uh, which ended up being quite a bit uh, sooner than he would normally publish in Barkwood Pieces. John's not one, too rush uh with a review but uh the walt mossbergs and the david pogues and the eric Beggs and the cnets and the and gadgets and verges they were all there at nine o'clock on the dot uh, let's talk about this watch column because i thought it was um much more interesting than the phone bit because we really do know a lot about the phone you know vanishingly little about the watch i think that the thing about it is that it was very polarizing and very troubling in a lot of ways i think it all comes down to uh the price that Apple's planning to target, something that Gruber was was able to speak with quite a bit of authority on, I thought, as well as the kind of customer that they're planning to target by selling it at those prices. And if you read this piece, and I and I hope we include a link in the show notes, uh, we have show notes, don't we? Yeah, we do. Yeah, great. This would be an opportunity to tell people to go to our website at www.it-guy.com and look for more than just code podcast. Yes. And, and therein find the link to this some 5,000 words of John Gruber talking about this watch. One of, the, one of the first sort of controversial points that he made was talking about just the price. And he actually surprised me by saying that the of the three lines of watch that Apple is planning to ship, there's the regular watch, a sport, and an edition watch. And made of steel, 
aluminum and 18 karat gold respectively that it would be the sport that would be the least expensive one at $349 US. Starting at. Correct, starting at. Well, that's the thing. See, his proposition is that Apple is going to distinguish pricing based on just the case of the watch itself, and not necessarily, although we don't know for sure anyway, uh, whether there will be any specs inside that will also distinguish pricing. As, as we have today with the iPhones and iPads, for example, where we get amount of storage inside dictating how much we're paying for it. The points that Gruber was making was that you, what you really need to do here is get your head around the idea that, sure, there will be a $350 watch, but you are easily going to be able to spend thousands of dollars on a watch. And not just on the watch, but on the bands themselves. He went into detail about uh, some of the other types of luxury watch brands that are in the market that Mm -hmm. are way over the heads of what any tech consumer would consider a normal price for a watch. Um, Describing how individual lockets, uh, pieces in the watch band, metal watch bands, are hand-machined and assembled, put together and of varying sizes to make it a perfect whole. And if Apple is kind of targeting the same build quality um, with their pricing that that he's positing and just to summarize that 349 for the sport about a thousand dollars for the regular watch and did he say two thousand or five thousand five thousand it was at that at those prices you know we're talking about something that is mind-blowing <laughs> in terms of who is gonna buy that right so people like us the nerds all right we're not going to buy that watch. Let's be clear. Unless unless you guys have stores of money that I'm not familiar with. But a, the group of people that will buy such a watch are not people like us at all. Mm-hmm. And what Gruber was saying is sort of predicting what he calls the shitstorm that will ensue when the tech press gets its hands on those prices and realizes that this is a product that isn't for us anymore. Um. The, the, the point that I really want to make when I when I read this was was how Apple is targeting a type of customer that they've never targeted before, at least not directly, with the iPod and the iPhone and the iPad and even every Mac up until today. Apple has targeted nerds, all right, because we've thought of them as a technology company and they've been building what many consider the best technology products. So these these products come with a price that uh, we can easily attach to the value they provide to us. And as nerds, we can analyze that. We can look at the numbers. We can see the specs. We can, we can know the value proposition, and we can decide whether it's a good value or not and make the right decision for the right kind of product, you know, which iPhone we're going to buy, which iPad, which Mac. And it's, it's logical, you know, there is, there's some feeling in there um, because maybe we want the white one instead of the black one. But overall, we, we can attach the cost we're paying to the value it provides us. But I'll jump in and say, I'm not sure I agree that Apple has been targeting nerds all this time. I'm actually kind of surprised to hear you say that. Uh, Certainly at, at one time they did, uh, but 
I think with the release of the iPod, Apple changed. I mean, it, it, it's been a long time since the nerd has been their primary target. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, agree that. I think there's a lot of uh, younger people, you know, 20-somethings, college students or whatnot. They all have iPhones, at least as far as I can tell. Um, a lot of, you know, soccer moms have, have iPhones and iPads. So I, and, I don't. And you see it in, you see in Hollywood too. A lot of celebrities have iPads and iPhones and iPods and stuff as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You're leading so, to my so point. I, yes, you're leading to my point. <laughs> oh, okay. So well, so my, my, yeah. My no, only, no, no, my only, no. It's uh, not a luxury item. <laughs> uh, you know, it's if anything, it's a mainstream item. It's it's a it's a broad spectrum item. Okay. Um, and I think as nerds, we have led the charge for Apple. You know. The, the soccer moms and the teenagers would not have this thing if it, if it weren't for us having started it and perpetuating it in the market. Um, and I think the point I'm trying to make is that it's, it's come to the point now where Apple and it's the iPhone in particular have become so explosively successful, right, that they, they don't need us anymore, okay? Apple doesn't need us anymore to sell their products, we're, so, the, we're the early adopters. We're on the bleeding edge, right? And, and that's uh, Simon Sinek has a whole thing on on how Apple works in his this book on start with why. But it's you know any product coming to market needs early adopters and you know uh, to basically grab it, and that's within the first ten percentile of anybody that buys a product. But it takes it takes a while for it to make the leap to the mainstream, which is at the middle of a bell curve, if you can imagine a bell curve. Uh, where this kind of product now becomes commonplace, right? And kind of that's why I was sort of asking you guys about where you thought this particular product was going to be sold, because I don't see it being. I mean, yes, the the app store, Apple Store, is is a nice place with the nice maple tables and all that kind of stuff and wonderful atmosphere. But I don't see it as a place where you know you go to buy an item of this caliber. If in fact Gruber's right, and he probably is, about the fact that there's going to be a watch that's in the umpteen thousands of dollars, right? Um, and his argument is sound. I mean, like some some of the heavily machined, you know, uh, beautifully intricate metal bands, you know, kind of, you know, all linked together, you know, t- took hours and hours and hours to manufacture. Um, that's not going to be a cheap product, right? So, Yeah, it, it remains to be seen what, what they're going to do. I mean, Apple certainly is pretty good at, at marketing, and, and they've always known pretty much how much they can charge a premium for all the products and still sell a huge number of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what they do. I, I don't think, I mean, unless they just screwed up in this case, which is possible, but <laughs> I don't, I don't think that they would just uh, put something out that was exorbitantly priced like that without thinking through the ramifications of that. I mean, if there's one thing that they're good at, it's, it's marketing for sure. I mean, they're good at a lot of things, but marketing that's is, true, is one but, of them. But so I'm, I'm curious as to what, where Aaron is going with this because, and, and that's why I'm going to give him the floor back, um, mm-hmm. is, is, so you, you, your theory is that, or your, your, your thesis is that they don't need us as nerds to promote their products anymore. Now it's become mainstream. Now they've got the whole world looking to them to produce these wonderful products. So where does that, where does this $4,000 or even $1,000 watch fit into the grand scheme of things, Aaron? That is the big question because the point I was driving at is the fact that the type of customer that has led the charge for Apple in the past isn't going to lead the charge in the future for the watch, at least, because it's not going to be this type of person that's going to buy that watch. So when they build the sport watch, assuming Gruber's right about the pricing model for the sport watch, I think 
I think we'll buy the sport watch, right? Um, but they're focusing so hard on this edition watch and the regular watch with the stainless steel band um, that a whole different class of people are going to buy it. And that leads right in to the very heart of this huge polarizing issue, I think. And Mark, you just suggested part of it. Um, how can this be a super expensive luxury item when it's a computer that's going to be obsolete in 18 months? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it was, a, it was a, a post by Amy, Amy Worrell this morning. Um, she's a Pebble user. and She was talking about, she started off talking about how she's part of this quote-unquote uh, smartwatch revolution. And she uses her Pebble to tell her when she's got notifications about her email and phone calls coming and um, and has great battery life and all that kind of stuff. And so she w- was rebutting or at least giving her opinion based on what she read in the John Gruber, Gruber uh, article um, about the fact that, yeah, where is this where is this going? And, you know, she, for one, is not going to be, be buying anything beyond the base watch, you know, like, and, and I don't think I could either, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, like, how, how could you? Yeah, I, I can think of a couple of possibilities. Still thinking about it from a, a business point of view. Maybe Apple's not expecting anyone to buy this thing. Uh, you know, they do their big announcement here in September, and they they give equal weight to the to the expensive one, uh, but and, and that builds a lot of buzz, right? And gets a lot of people talking about it. And maybe by the time they actually come out in January, February, whenever that is, suddenly that one will be, yeah, you know, if you if you want the fourteen karat gold one or eighteen karat gold, whatever it is, yeah, you, you can get it. But that's not front and center on the on the on the App Store front page anymore mm. um mm. you know maybe it's it's the luxury model that's available but you know it was kind of just there to build the buzz and and you know the four people on the planet who buy it great they'll ship them one <laughs> but you it's know like the, the 20th anniversary macintosh that was ten thousand dollars and they would it would be hand delivered to your house and yeah a person would come and set it up for you on your desk exactly exactly yeah. Yeah. A- another possibility i guess is that if it's a really high-end watch like that then uh, you'll have no problem taking it to a, you know, a special Apple-sanctioned uh, jeweler who can do the hardware upgrade of the of the innards after a, a year or so, or maybe you get you know five years of free upgrades or something like that with the price oh, that's, of the watch. That's, a, that's an interesting point because that, that that is one of the biggest biggest things about it. Is why would you buy? Why would you spend that amount of money on something unless you had and needed a tax writer for something? Unless why would you spend that much money on something? That's essentially going to be replaced in a year when they come up with the, the, the Apple Watch 2.0, you know? Yeah, Gruber suggested that as well in his piece, uh, that the innards might be traded out. I, I don't know if I can buy that, though, because so much of the style of this watch is going to be bound up in just the, the actual case itself, you know, right down to the 18-karat the gold, which is going to be worth a lot of money. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about this last week, that... You look at that watch, and it looks like a first-generation device, doesn't it? You know, it looks like the original iPhone of the wrist, and I think we're going to see in a couple years the iPhone 6 of the wrist, um, and everybody's going to prefer that, to my mind, and they're not going to want to get the gut switched out of their phone. They're going to want the new thing. Another possibility is that the... Uh, and I haven't read the article in detail, but maybe the amount of gold in the actual watch is, is less than 
than his assumption. Um, maybe it's you know it's just Possible. a thin layer of gold around a you know there there has to be some electronics in there, so that actually takes up some space and it's not a huge device. So maybe there's not a lot of room for real gold except right around the edges. So so maybe that's uh, that would lower the price a bit. It was a very compelling read um, that made the point that that the difference between gold plating and actual solid gold alloy used in the case is um, enormous. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. And and that also um, that there's no chance that it could just be gold plating. I have an interesting thought here with regard to the pricing and particularly on the the premium end. Um, you know, Gruber's article does mention the six thousand dollar Android phones and six thousand dollar Symbian phones, and not a single one of those phones is actually worth that amount of money uh, from a technical merit standpoint. Right? It was all in the materials going into it. Um, so I could kind of see the the watch being that way as well, right? If you're Jennifer Lawrence or if you're Jay-Z, you could certainly afford to have that sort of thing and replace it. I mean, every week if you needed to really, I mean, at their income level. Uh, sorry, Jaime, mm. I have to correct you there. That's Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess that answers the question about why we say where we're from. <laughs> That's great. I, I appreciate the fact that you translated that into Canadian. Yes. That way they can follow along at home. Yep. So, exactly. So would his wife be Beyonce then too? Is, is no. Beyonce? No, no, no. God, no. God, no. Uh, you can cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably will. Oh, well, another issue that's come up this week has, has been, um, and I, I don't know if you guys have updated to iOS 8. I just did this a few hours ago. And um, one of the questions that comes up when you're updating is, do you want to switch over to Cloud Drive? And and I had read a couple of posts uh, last last week about not doing that because my other devices, and, and in particular, um, uh, my Macs are not using Yosemite, which will also take advantage of Cloud Drive. So um, do you guys have any uh, thoughts on the Cloud Drive versus regular iCloud syncing with iOS 8? Can you summarize what the issues are that people are reporting? Sure. sure. Aaron, why don't you tell us what, what's going on with that? Okay. So this is a feature in iOS 8 uh, called Cloud Drive. Basically, it's a way for um, for you to share your iCloud files between your Mac and your iOS devices. All right. So the fact is that you is it's not going to work properly until Yosemite ships and everybody's using Yosemite. If right. you don't have Yosemite installed on your Mac and you activate Cloud Drive, uh, sorry, iCloud Drive on your iOS device, then your existing iCloud storage will be stranded out in the ether. Mm. That's the problem. So, and you won't be able to access any of it from your Mac, which isn't running Yosemite and where iCloud Drive doesn't exist. So during this little window now, and it's probably going to be about a month before Yosemite ships, if you activate iCloud Drive, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So the first thing that you get asked when you're setting up iCloud is, is if you'd like to use iCloud Drive. And it's framed, of course, in a way of, of, of course I want to use iCloud Drive. <laughs> you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's the new thing. So yes, of course, I will say yes. And it's even phrased in a rather peculiar way. Somebody posted a screenshot of it, and I wish I could find it. I'm kind of digging around for it right now. But it said something along the lines of, oh, it looks like you're not using iCloud Drive. Um, you sure? And it's a very vaguely phrased word, and you can either continue or cancel. Right. Um, and it's not clear which option will prevent you 
from using iCloud Drive. Well, on the screen that I saw today, it actually listed off my other devices that are connected to iCloud and said that they won't be able to use the store. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. And I think the choices were, were, I mean, it's the same thing as, you know, when you're installing iOS on any device, it asks if you want to log into iCloud as well. I generally don't. But it's amazing here, right, that they they would actually ship with this because it makes no sense whatsoever. So my understanding is that some other features like continuity are just not going to be you know, ready to work at all for, um, you know, Yosemite devices on, on the Mac until Yosemite ships. Okay. That's kind of sensible. You can get that in an iOS 8.1, but this like actually ruins, you know, this could be ruins people's digital lives here. Yeah. Uh, it yeah, puts no. you in a world of hurt and there's, there's no real reason why they couldn't have had a migration path for this. There was notices coming from Apple about iCloud drive and iCloud syncing and, things like that over the last little while. Like, you know, I, I know that when there were a couple of updates in, in the, in the beta stream where, um, we were told we were going to lose everything in that was in our cloud drive storage. Do you remember seeing those Aaron or Jaime? Yeah. Well, at one point they had to flush it, you know, because they oh, were okay. like starting over again. They said, Oh, Oh, by the way, if you've got anything in iCloud drive, we're going to just flush that away. It's going to be gone. So bring <laughs> it back, uh, you know, for yourself or kiss it goodbye. You right, know, Hey, it's right. a beta, you know, <laughs> Welcome yeah. to beta land. So if you want to run the betas, you got to deal with that sort of thing. There's sure. little precedent for Apple having done something like that, but uh, it is the future, and everything is in the cloud. So yeah, sure. You know, it's a it's mm. it's a huge pickle uh, right now because we're just we're just caught in between um, this whole notion of Apple tying its platforms together, um, but not quite synchronizing close enough. So. People are going to be left out if they pick the wrong uh, button right now. But uh, a month from now, everything will be fine. Everybody will be happy. We'll go on with their lives. It's amazing to me. Um, you know, so as a user, uh, Google does this rather seamlessly, right? So they've, they've upgraded several products um, like Drive and uh, Gmail. And they've actually had this preview period where it's like, hey, you're using Classic. Would you like to switch to the new version and see what that looks like? Uh, mm-hmm. This will be permanent, you know, relatively soon. And it's been weeks to months away since that actually happens. But they maintained both, right? And it seamlessly handled information. I, I didn't lose any information by switching back and forth between the two. I mean, it's not, this really... isn't fair. You can't compare Google and Apple in terms of web services. That's just, that just, that's just mean, man. <laughs> so the, the second half of this, though, is I, I actually deal with this as a developer on a, not a daily basis, but, you know, certainly many, many times throughout my career and even fairly recently dealing with migration pieces. Okay, well, here's this fundamental change to this part of a data structure or how things are going to happen. Um, How are we going to migrate things? And and in some Mm -hmm. cases it's, okay, well, release a version of the app earlier, wait and and, and watch the analytics to see that the distribution has reached a, a certain threshold and then switch everybody over. Or in other cases, on the backend side, having you know two different endpoints, you know V1 and V2, uh, handling the the pressure until uh, things get far enough along that we can just sunset the old V1. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had to do things like that too. Now that you mention it, yeah, hmm. we all have. But Apple, ain't nobody got time for that. They're just gonna push right ahead. <laughs> it's, it's like they don't care. They're so famous for this now. That anybody who's been paying attention to Apple knows they don't give a crap about this. Really? At the corporate level, you know? To 
to, to feed the resources to the people to, to do this crap right. And it's it's been years. We You know, think about it. How many missteps have, has Apple made in web services over the years? Wouldn't you say all of them? I do approach, you know, storing things online with, with a certain amount of caution, you know, be, being, you know, an IT person or an IT guy. Um, oh, I see what you did there. I, you did there. No, <laughs> I don't trust it. I don't, yeah, it's branding, right? I don't trust, uh, I don't trust, I don't tend to trust other people with my stuff. I mean, you know, I, I've run servers, servers, I've written APIs, I've seen what, what I can see, and I can just imagine what other people can see, right? So, um, you know, I know I, I know how honest I am, and I'm I try to be as honest as I can be, but uh, with people's stuff and and be honorable about it, and try not to lose their data as much as possible. But yeah, I I I find it hard to believe that Apple w- wouldn't take that con- into consideration. But you know, and and there have been there have been you know issues with hardware where entire people lost entire hard drives because of um, changes that Apple made. But I don't know about online. I'm not. I don't think I really would have trusted them that far with things. You know. Well, it's just, it's historically Apple's largest Achilles heel. They're just not uh, focused on excellence when it comes to web services. And Really? Okay. Well, hmm. you're, you're reacting as if this is a surprise to you, but surely... Well, it's a surprise to me. It's a surprise to me because I wouldn't, I wouldn't put my stuff in somebody else's hands. Okay, fair enough. Without, without, without proper backup and all that oh. kind of stuff, but that's... But I'm, I'm yeah. speaking now of, of Apple's web services that they have put out in the market and have claimed to be, have been reliable for people to use and which have sure. proven not to be, right? You know, we go back to iTools, right? iTools was not that great. So they succeeded mm-hmm. that with Dot .Mac, right? Um, dot .Mac was a dismal failure. And now it's iCloud. And we've seen how iCloud has performed erratically um, over the past couple years. Um, and... A famous example in there being messages that's not syncing properly between clients and mm-hmm. um, the, the, the huge limitations on, on how it works um, in terms of being accessible only to Macs and iOS devices, no proper APIs, uh, core data sync being a farce, um, mm. all of these things, these both executional missteps in terms of things just not working as you expect. And strategic missteps um, in terms of not being a part of the open web, um, which means that people that want to make cross-platform apps uh, have to go to another solution. They can't consider um, Apple's web services for that. Even today, now, we, thanks to the last WWDC, we know there's CloudKit, very compelling, you know, fresh new direction for cloud services, still locked to the Apple ecosystem. Right. So. I, I just don't see how um, Apple is ever going to get themselves, get their big boy pants on and <laughs> and really come to the table to be in the same league as a Google or an Amazon. I mean, I, I tweeted um, a public service announcement today um, <laughs> telling people, like, hey, you know, iOS 8 is available, but you know, wait a couple of days at the very least. Um, just as a general rule, that's what I do, right? I, I never upgrade on the on the same day as i want to go you know see you know in forums and ars technica and whatnot and see you know what are the issues that people are dealing with and and try to understand if that's something i'm willing to accept um and the past 24 hours have been 
spectacularly bad <laughs> for, for Apple. <laughs> so uh, let's see if I can list them all. So there's apparently something wrong with HealthKit and apps that have HealthKit enabled are dead in the water, possibly even pulled off the app store. It's a little unclear to me, but I, really? I did see a, a tweet about, oh yeah, Apple's looking to fix this within the next month. Um, well, <laughs> for promise there's oh, oh, by the end uh, of the month they said by the end of month okay okay so <laughs> it's like so two, two, weeks, so two weeks okay so it's not not 30 days but two weeks yep. um uh also uh something was different in the production version of ios 8 that wasn't uh in the gm version and dropbox and several other apps um had their you know like automatic syncing type uh, functionality go sideways and in fact i think i saw an update to dropbox on ios that that said, okay, well, we've restored this functionality. Yeah, I got bit by uh, that. And um, I'm still not entirely clear what happened here, but I think something went wrong with the App Store itself and pricing. Because last night I saw a tweet from, I want to say it was Dan Byer saying that, hey, one password is free. I was like, oh, okay, great. I went and downloaded it, and it's ordinarily, I think, $10 or something of that nature. And then, oh, really? then I saw some tweets this morning that made it sound like, no, that version wasn't supposed to be free. There was a news article posted about how it wasn't supposed to be free, but then uh, Rustam, uh, who is the founder of One Password, he said, "I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, there's no story here. Yes, it should be free." Um, and that turned out to really? be because One Password Five was launched today, and it is free now with uh, premium in-app purchase. So uh, there's no surprise there. Uh, oh, so that okay. turned out not to be a problem. Hmm. And and shame on you for not having downloaded one password before that. <laughs> I've looked at others like LastPass and whatnot. No, and, no, uh, no, 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 no. So that's a that's a Canadian product you got there. You gotta you gotta support those guys. They're great. <laughs> With the one password app. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's there's been a lot of things that have kind of gone wrong with this launch, and uh, there was there were some issues with uh, in-app purchases in under iOS eight. Uh, that seemed to have uh, gotten shaken out overnight. Um, but just before launch of iOS 8, uh, there was this huge problem with IAPs. And uh, a lot of developers who were bitten by that claimed that Apple seemed to have worked all through the night to fix those. Um, so there's clearly a lot going on today uh, and yesterday, and it's not all settled down even now. Mm. So. Well, I do know that I was on the phone on the phone with a client just before uh, we spoke, and and for some I, could, I kept hearing her pushing keys on her phone. I'm like, I'm thinking like, you know, what's going on? And it turned out it was actually my face pushing keys on the phone because the screen hadn't gone black. Oh, really? Right. The, the yeah, proximity sensor tried, wasn't working. Yeah, and then and then when I when I went to lock the when I went to lock, it used to work way too often. The proximity sensor sometimes the screen wouldn't come back even when I wasn't even on the phone, but. Uh, and then when I went to lock this lock the screen so that I could continue the conversation, it hung the phone up. Oh, you wow! Know? So there, there, are, there. Are that and that's just one small example of, of kind of craziness that's happening, right? So, but I, I've been using the beta. I have the Gold Master on my other phone, which isn't my actual daily phone for a while, and I hadn't really noticed anything odd about it. So, sure enough, I went ahead and, and updated. I'm I'm usually like Jaime. I usually wait. A couple of days before I before I jump right in, you know. I'm a total but I, I, sucker. <laughs> I just get right on to it. <laughs> um, so, Aaron, you posted uh, something here on um, app, the A8 and Intel. Can you expand on I that? I sure can. Uh, sure. I was. I love this piece. <laughs> um, 
So I'm, I'm talking about uh, a column published uh, on Barron's, the mm-hmm. magazine, online magazine, discussing how Apple's A8 chip uh, seems to be a little more advanced than the latest Intel chips. And the point of comparison on these are the number of transistors that Apple has crammed into that A8. When, when they went on stage last week and talked about the A8 just briefly, um, and, and recall now that last year when the 5S was launched and, and later the iPad Air, that they had this A7 chip, which they refer to as desktop class performance. And although that's a very vague term, it certainly put the idea in a lot of people's heads that, wait a second, if Apple can make mobile chips that are desktop class, what could stop them from making an even better chip and putting it in a MacBook Air. Mm. And that kind of speculation went around and around and around, and some saying that there's just no way they could do that, others saying it's inevitable, um, and smart people on both sides of it. Um, I I was very interested in this topic and following every side. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the, the biggest problem with it in terms of real day-to-day use is virtualization. Uh, having an x86 uh, chip inside of a Macintosh opens up the Mac for all of these switchers that Apple has been enjoying <laughs> coming to the platform for the past, how long has it been? 10 years or so? Feels like a long time. Uh, 2006 or so, wasn't it, when they switched to Intel? Yeah, around there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in that time, Apple has done very well. The Mac business has, right? Uh, because all of these people who are Windows users came over because the the Mac turned out to be a brilliant Windows computer. Right? Yeah, it's a better PC yeah. than than most of the hardware out of course, there. Yeah, because it's it's of course top quality hardware, and you can easily run Windows on it because of those x86 chips from Intel. Exactly. So yeah. with with these AM uh, sorry AMD these ARM chips that Apple's making, although they can certainly produce a high powered chip. Uh, that uses a lot less energy, when these are high priorities for Apple, uh, you would definitely lose this virtualization capability. And mm. that, to a lot of people, strikes them as impossible. There's just no way. Now, this column that I'm pointing out here tonight, it was just published today, um, talks about how Apple seems to be jumping ahead of Intel. And Intel, <laughs> everyone who knows Intel understands that these guys are the absolute leaders in chip building technology. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's the AMDs out there and there's other companies that make that make chips and no nobody has better technology for producing chips than Intel. So, these that's, guys That's actually not true. That's not true. That's oh, not oh true. yeah, yeah. Let, let's ask the the PhD in semiconductor. Yeah, I, I, I used to work in the chip industry. Oh, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> well, what am I talking for? Yes, let me introduce Mark Rubin, PhD in semiconductors. Where you go? Certainly, TSMC, which is Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, has come at least very close, if not gone beyond, what Intel is doing from a technology point of view. And Ooh. they and and a lot of people use them. Uh, Apple currently uses Samsung, but there's a lot of talk that they're either switching to TSMC or or uh, or maybe have already started switching, and we just don't know about it. So I, I'm not actually too surprised by it by that part of it well it, it's not it's not a shocker to me the the um the factors that we're talking about here when we talk about intel being the best is in terms of process size right so right. process technology so, it's not just size 
uh, it used to be very much just size limited, but we're very quickly reaching the limits of how small you can actually make these things. Uh, we're talking about, you know, we're getting close to 10 nanometers now. So the technologies have, ha the architectures have changed from a traditional, what's called a planar CMOS, uh, where the lateral size of the gate, transistor gate, is, a, is one of the limiting factors. Uh, also the interconnects, the metal interconnects, going to more of a, a vertical type of structure where, where they can take advantage of, in technology, it's much easier to, to make something thin in the vertical direction than in the horizontal direction. So by accounting for, by using some of these uh, vertical techniques, things called FinFETs, for example, uh, you, can, you can actually push the technology quite a bit. And there's a lot of innovation going on there now where, you know, a clever design of the device uh, can make a big difference where, you know, before it was just, you know, how, how good are you at, at shrinking things down as opposed to coming up with new and clever architectures for building the devices. Wow, you're really so impressing think... us here. <laughs> yes that was dr mark rubens by the way right used to, used to do that for a living so this is kind of interesting um i don't really have enough of a a background in this sort of technology to understand um you know the, the precise differences between what the arm chips are doing versus what the the x86 chips are doing um but i think it's kind of interesting for them to compare uh the desktop chips with the uh, the mobile chips because i I would hazard a guess that, you know, in all engineering, there's trade-offs, right? And I would guess that the ARM chips, if given a choice, will trade power consumption over, you know, raw number crunching performance. And I would guess that the Haswell chips from Intel would make sort of the opposite choice. Like, okay, well, certainly we're trying to do things to improve our power consumption and have a, a longer battery life in our, our laptops. And um, But it's not as critical as it is on a phone, on a watch, on an iPad. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's kind of interesting to me to, to have these compared, even though the, the, the two are becoming very close, right? You're trying to get better power conservation on the desktop and laptop side and much better number crunching performance on the, um, on the mobile side. A big limiting factor as well is heat generation. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, you yeah. can fry an egg on a MacBook, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. in a, in a bigger form factor, like a, a laptop or a, or a desktop, you have more room to have heat sinks that can dissipate the heat. So you can pump more current through these things. And in general, current translates into speed. So the, the more current you can pump in, the faster your, your transistors can switch. Uh, so if you can dissipate that heat without melting down the chip, then you can get more performance up. With a mobile device, you're very limited in the amount of space that you have or volume that you have to dissipate that heat. And, you know, this is why a couple, couple of versions back, people were complaining about the, I think it was the iPhone 4 or way back then, getting really hot. Yeah, I remember those, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's hard to dissipate all that heat. So, so in general, uh, a, a, a chip targeted for a mobile device should be slower than a desktop device simply because of that. Uh, however, if they're doing something pretty clever, which I guess they are, uh, that could switch, that could flop. Well, that's fascinating, Mark. You know, all this time, I think that I've been under the impression that um, that Intel was the leader in manufacturing of CPUs oh, because of this for, process for, size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for many, many years, uh, almost since the beginning, they have been. Uh, and it's, it's a, remember, it's a, it's a constant race in scaling down. Uh, it, so it's, it, they might lead in one generation, and then someone else might be able to, to 
leapfrog over them in the next generation. By generation, I mean feature size, you know, from 28 nanometer to 18 nanometer to 10 nanometer or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, historically, Intel has always by far been the, the dominant one. Uh, in fact, AMD never never came close, although they, they tried for a while. But in recent years, TSMC has gotten pretty good, and they've, they've, caught, they've caught up pretty much. And that's pretty much the point that this column is making. But, you know, I, that's why I wanted to talk about it. It was like, hey, you know what? Intel's not the leader anymore. Um, yeah. And, uh, and you're like, yeah, that's not news, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's been, it's really amazing though like and and to to have apple um have that expertise in house to design those chips the smart design as you're saying uh but also have the the partner that can manufacture them and it not being samsung too right i don't know yet whether they've actually switched it may still be samsung i'm, I'm not sure uh well that's they they this this column suggests that they are working with tsmc Oh, they did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. That, that's who they're public, uh, producing these A8s with, at least. Yep. That makes complete sense. Then. Yep. And they they do have a great design team too. Uh, I actually know a couple of people on that team. They're they're very good. Oh wow! Hmm. Say hello to them for us, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the cool device. Yeah. yeah. Keep yeah. up the good yeah. work. Yep. Yeah. Well, speaking speaking of new devices, uh, last uh, was it Thursday morning at midnight Pacific time. The iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus went on sale. Is that correct? Yeah. Was it Thursday? It okay. was. Yeah. Hypothetically, well, it was, it was, fr- that was true. It was technically Friday morning, right? Oh, Friday, yeah. mo- Friday morning. Okay, yeah, so I was you were, you were, It was still Thursday for you because you. you I was gone very to sleep. tired. I was very, very tired at that. But it must point. have been like exactly. four in the morning. Well, and it's funny because my the carrier Rogers, who I who I deal with, sent me an email saying that you know at four, at five a.m. the window would open. I'd be able to order my my new iPhone, and I thought that's odd. You know, kind of weird time and. But I somehow had missed the whole point that it was going to go on sale at midnight on on um, on Friday morning, and um, I just happened. To, I was just about to just for the sake of science, I, I logged onto Rogers' website and I went in to see if the queue had been set up. And sure enough, it was. So I went through the whole process and ordered my phone, and then um, I ended up being like you know 120 or something in the in the line of people who can get phones from Rogers, which hopefully means I get one this weekend. Um, and then I posted to Twitter, and, and I saw that everybody else was having, everybody was online ordering um, phones at the same time, and they were all having different issues. And I think, Jaime, you said you had ordered yours through your carrier as well, right? Yeah. Was and that, that an issue? And, yeah. and that wasn't my preference. So very quickly, my experience. So at um, 1130, I tried logging into Apple's store, and they had already shut it down at that point. So I said, okay, let me go ahead and, and log into Verizon just to... Um, just to be ready. And I poked around Verizon's site a little bit and said, Oh my gosh, I, I can't figure out what's going on here. This is terrible. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Cause it's Verizon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then I, you know, at, as midnight approached, like everybody else, I kept hitting refresh on my browser, hoping that things would come through and continued to do so for 10 past midnight. Um, I was also looking at Twitter at the same time to see what was going on, seeing some people complaining that the store had not come back up for them. Others saying, hey, I've already ordered my phone. So I, I knew that something mm. bad was happening. I've seen this happen with WWDC, so it doesn't surprise me. So then I immediately went over to Verizon's site and said, okay, let me go through this. Had to take some time to um, look up a few of the terms that they were using because it didn't make any sense, even though I didn't change anything on my contract. Um, <laughs> and was able to get through it, you know, just fine. So by, you know, 15 or 20 past uh, 
midnight, I already had a phone. And then I started tweeting myself saying, hey, guys, if you're trying to buy a phone, don't bother with Apple's website. Go to your carrier and just do it through them. And sure. it seemed like some people had success doing that. But once all the, the word had gotten out, I think everybody crushed. Um, AT&T stopped working. Verizon stopped working. Sprint, I think, was kind of limping along. And T-Mobile never was functional that night here in the USA, mm. as far as I can tell from listening to people on the Internet. Yeah, and a lot of people were trying to, and then the word got out on Twitter that that uh, you could order your your phone through the App Store app as well, and and people were trying that. And um, from one password, Rustin posted on Twitter that that uh, he had apparently been hitting you know add to cart, add to cart, and at one point he posted a picture of his his shopping cart, and it, it, Apple was chastising him saying that you can only order two phones, that's the limit, and he had he apparently had run his his uh, cart up to eleven thousand dollars. You know, just just through the website not coming back properly or whatever, right? So it's hilarious. As you do. Yeah. So how was your experience ordering, Aaron? What, what did you go through? Oh, yeah. So um, my, my plan was to buy it off contract. Uh, so mm-hmm. I decided that I would wake up at 3 a.m. Eastern time and buy it off Apple's site. No problems. Trouble is, I didn't wake up again until 7. Oh. And... Went to Apple's site, and by that time was working fine. So I actually ordered it, but uh, it was on 7 to 10 days at that point. So okay. I bought the phone, the iPhone 6, uh, 64 gig silver, in case you're wondering. Um, and later that day, I believe it was, um, oh, I can't remember who now. Somebody, oh, yeah, my friend Adam Cool, And he said, uh, you can actually still reserve in store for pickup. So I went to the Apple retail page, found uh, they had a really great directory. Which, which store do you want? And then choose uh, the phones that they have available for in-store pickup. Um, there's three Apple stores in the general vicinity of where I live, although none of them are close because I'm in boonies. But it uh, turns out the Yorkdale Apple store, about close to an hour away from my house, has, the, has that very phone. So I arranged to get, pick that one up on noon on Friday, and I will be going to get that. Worked out pretty well. That's cool. Hmm. Well, of course, they're going to have some stock for people who are going to walk in to buy a phone. Oh, right? absolutely. So. Well, there's there's going to be two lineups at the Apple Store on Friday. There's going to be those who are just walking off the street to buy one, and there's going to be the re- reservations. And and how how many units do you think they'll have at a store? Well, it depends on the store, right? Uh, yeah. Have, well, Yorkdale Yorkdale's pretty big. Yorkdale's a huge store, um, so yeah. they're going to have a lot. Um, the in-store pickups uh, are arranged by hour-long slots, so I chose the noon to one o'clock slot. Eastern time. And so it's it's hard to say how that's actually going to handle because, you know, I decided to go in later in the day hoping that the initial rush would have kind of dribbled off. And so hopefully by the time I get there, it'll be a little slower and it won't be as big a hassle. I'll let you know. So, Mark, how did you go about I had a phone? surprisingly easy time, actually. I'm, I'm a little surprised to hear everyone had so much problems. But uh, you know, I, I actually did try to go onto Apple's site at midnight Pacific time, uh, like everybody else, and couldn't even get to a, you know, an, an ordering page. I just got a we'll be back soon. So I went to sleep, got up at around 7 the next morning and went on and bought one. No problem. Any um, idea what the ETA is on it is? September 19th. Really? Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Supposed to it, the the shipping de- the delivery day is the nineteenth according to according to the uh, the website. 
That's really interesting. That's, that's yeah. West Coast solidarity right there. That's what I, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of, so I've, I read a couple of reviews today. I think we can sort of mix the, let's mix the conversation here about um, our phones and what, why we chose what we chose. I chose the iPhone 6 Plus, uh, Space Gray, I guess it's called. Um, and the reason I did that, obviously, because I want to have, I want to have the phone uh, that's got the bigger size so I can test, you know, uh, the new landscape mode as well with, when I'm building apps. But I read an interesting article, I think it was on The Verge just a little while ago, about um, uh, the, the reviewer wasn't really pleased with the iPhone 6 Plus. He was more he thought he would go more to a 6 itself. But um, he raised an interesting point in that the, the iPhone 6 Plus is almost big enough to be your only device. You know, it's it's like I like I said before, I use an iPad mini. That's my iPad of choice. And um, but, you know, the iPhone 6 Plus, plus approaches that size it's bigger you know it's got more screen real estate um and so i'm I'm actually kind of looking forward to it even though you know and i do have thankfully big hands so it's not a big issue for me but uh what do you what did you guys think about the way you made your choices about what uh, devices you chose i think you the six plus two as well honey yeah i went with a uh silver uh 64 gigabyte six plus because 64 gigabytes of storage is all anyone will ever need. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went with it kind of for two reasons. One is, you know, as a developer, I'm really interested in the, the user experience side of it and understanding how that size class is different. Um, and even seen some tweets about, you know, some of the, the apps uh, from Apple acting a little bit differently on the six plus than they do on the six. Right. Um, I'm also thinking that, um, it's just so different that I wanted to see you know, as a user uh, and not as a developer and, you know, having a testing device, but as a user, um, could I get away with not having to have, um, so I have a full size iPad and there are occasions, even within my own house where, you know, um, I have a, a split level house. So, you know, a couple stories here. Um, sure. and I'm always have my phone with me because it's my primary communication device. Uh, yet another reason for having a watch just to, to, to keep in touch with folks. Um, but I won't necessarily have the iPad with me. And there are times where, you know, I just don't feel like going downstairs for a, a brief bit of uh, internet browsing and I'll just browse on my iPhone five. And that'd be a much more enjoyable experience on a almost iPad mini sized, uh, you know, six plus. It's an interesting point just to interject there. I live in a house that's three or four stories tall, right? That's a very thin house in downtown Toronto and I've got so many devices. I, I actually have phones stashed throughout the house. So um, generally speaking, my, my devices stay on the first floor of the house. But if I'm on the second or third floor, there's always, you know, an iPhone, an older iPhone, maybe a, a 3G or whatever, or a 4 uh, within reach. So I can always, you know, jump on Twitter or have a look at an email or whatever. Right. So, you know, last week I said I wouldn't wear a watch, but maybe the watch sort of replaces that need to sort of have to have to tote everything around with you all the time, right? Well, Maybe it depends how close to the phone you'll have to be to use the watch, right? Go I, I got the uh, the the six uh, sixty four gig space gray, uh, and I chose the smaller one partly because I felt like you know this is something I needed to carry around all the time, and I didn't want the bigger one to be lugging that around. Um, but also, I I didn't say this part in the story uh, when I when I did actually get onto the website. Oh, the six pluses were gone already, so I I couldn't order one of those. So it made, oh. the, made the decision very easy at that point. Yeah, apparently the six plus was very very popular choice uh, on the first day of ordering. Well, it was also very constrained by every report that they just didn't have as many of them. 
between the two devices, the 6 and the 6 Plus, it's reported that it was something like 4 million units pre-ordered in 24 hours. For me, one of the huge considerations about whether to go with the, the 6 Plus or the 6 uh, was the very question you were asking about whether it could replace the iPad. And um, I think we talked about this last week. I, I made paper cutouts of each of these mm-hmm. phones and laid them in my hands and had a look at them and tried to decide. And, and actually, that was one of my chief considerations. I tried to picture myself using the 6 Plus in places where I am currently using my iPad Air, which... It's an amazing device. Come on, guys. Give it up for the iPad Air. Is that not gorgeous? Mm-hmm. Yeah! Love the iPad Air. For, for me, the iPad Mini was love at first sight. That's all I have to say. I had the original iPad Mini. I like that, too. Uh, yeah, I still have it. I still have that I one. Have I'm, waiting for t- I'm waiting for Touch ID. Yes. Um, the fact is, like, one of the reviews I read of the iPhone uh, was by Josh Topolsky, formerly of Engadget, and now writing for Business Week for some reason. Mm-hmm. And his was... Just a terrible review. I'm sorry to pile on him, but uh, that was just awful. He, he just pointed out all the negative things. And also some untruths, and chief among them was his assertion that the, the iPhone 6 Plus is, is damn near the size of an iPad mini. Um, but that is totally false. It's not even close. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at the paper cutouts, and, and some people have put together sketches, little drawings showing the relative size of an iPhone 6 Plus on top of an iPad Pad Mini, there's nothing, it's not even close. It's not even no, not even not in the same, same universe. And and that was kind of the, the call that I ended up making when I was looking at this thing in my hand. I thought, you know what? This isn't going to be like an iPad. Uh, this is just going to be a big-ass phone. And, oh, right. Um, which is great, you know? And, and, you know, you see it in action in videos, and you're like, you know, I would love that for reading email, uh, for looking at Twitter, for for browsing uh, articles on the web, that would be terrific. But for every other moment, and, and that phone is attached to me 100% of the time, uh, that would be a huge problem, I think. So I went for mm-hmm. the 6. It's an interesting point you make about the iPad, too, because I, I, you know, I was thinking about sort of some of the conversations we've had over the last couple of weeks. And, I mean, I were, I'm on my iPad mini most of the day. Like, you know, I work on my Mac because I can't run Xcode on my iPad, but... Um, and that other thing, Derigen or whatever it is, doesn't really work, really work very well. No. But, but, uh, well. Drigend, maybe, you're saying, right? Drigend, yeah, yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, the, the, the reality is that I spend a lot, whether I'm reading email or Twitter or whatever, just watching, when I'm watching movies, I've got the IMDb app and I'm reading all the backstory on, you know, all the trivia and all the people and how the movie was made and stuff like that. And, and if I have a choice to go out into the world, um, you know, to, for a meeting or whatever, I if I if I don't have to take my Mac with me, I take my iPad Mini with me. The phone is for me a communication device, and to be honest with you, I'm not so sure until it becomes a bit more mainstream that I really want to be look look like that dork talking to in his, into his iPhone six plus when he's out on the street. I may in fact just keep my iPhone five S in service for that purpose, right? What you were saying earlier about the shout out to the iPad, I love the iPad. I can't believe that. We haven't had iPads forever, you know. Absolutely, such a great yeah. device. Great device. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just don't see uh, a big ass iPhone replacing that iPad in my life. That, that's really what it comes down to. And, and you know what? I think Jim Dalrymple said it best. He said, "Get the, the size that you're going to be happy with, and just go with it." It's a personal exactly. decision, you know. Sure. And and there's no wrong one, right? 
Yeah, if you, if you want a $4,000 buy watch, buy a $4,000 watch. I mean, go ahead. Yes. You're only wrong <laughs> if you buy Android. It's that simple. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, or Windows. Windows well, phone. Yes, exactly. Yeah, which which brings up another quick little point here, and it may get cut too, but it brings up a quick little point. Uh, uh, there was an article written by um, one of the Android fans, a journalist. Um, this <clears throat> buying the iPhone six is the worst decision you could possibly make. Yeah, that's make. the one. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. I mean, it was it was amusing because it was like the worst form of of trolling you could possibly have um, in any sort of serious way. And I, I think maybe uh, Josh Topolsky is probably even better at that based on what I've heard of his review. But it, it really boiled down to like, hey, Android has had this stuff first, which isn't really as meaningful, right? And and even Samsung got caught up in this with its recent mm-hmm. um, advertising. Like, oh, you know, we, we had a, a bigger phone first. It's sort of backwards right it, it, it's sort of like well okay so you had it first but now we you know we have it too and if you were somebody who left ios or or never joined ios because you wanted a bigger phone isn't there one less reason for you to go android now it is really samsung and company advertising for apple you know like you've seen samsung actually call out apple's iphone 6 directly in in those very words and telling everybody that Apple's making a big ass phone now, mm. you know, so mm-hmm. that's great. And so the response isn't, "Oh, well, they're making a, the big phone that I want. I guess I'll buy an Android phone now." Really, like that's not that's not what's going to happen. They're going to go out and buy the big Apple phone. No, because finally, finally, they've got the phone that they want, exactly. the size that they want. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, so, it's so, 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 so the bottom line is, Apple is really good at marketing. That's all. They can convince competitors to sell for them. Uh, so speaking of phones and sizes and stuff like that, have you guys got anything to say about the um, changes in the simulators now that you've actually been able to run code on them and uh, some of the changes on the ITC uh, website, the uh, iTunes Connect? Nothing? don't have Crickets? anything to say. Like Maybe Mark does, but... but... I've been running a little bit on the, on the new simulators. Uh, I haven't seen any real issues Uh you know, none of the nothing I'm doing right now is targeted specifically towards like an iPhone six plus or something. You know, that would mm-hmm. take advantage of any of that stuff. Uh, but you know, just the standard apps that I'm that I'm developing now that that I have backward compatible with iOS seven seem to run fine, no issues. I, I haven't seen any problems. The only issue I have is I had actually I had a couple of them actually with with. Um... Uh, submitting my apps, and that was you know, with the new changes in iTunes Connect. Um, I had I I had actually submitted an app with the new interface, and I you know put in the the appropriate metadata for the next version, and I submitted the app through Xcode, no problem, and you know, but there was no in the old interface. There was you know you had to click on a button to say that you were ready to submit your binary, and then go back to Xcode and submit it. Uh, in the new version, there's none of that. You just set your app up, and then you go back to Xcode and verify and submit the app, and you think you're done. But what I didn't realize until I tried to sub- submit my second app is that you actually have to go down the page, scroll down the page to somewhere in the middle, and choose the binary that you actually want Apple to review, right? And that was kind of a, kind of a not. I mean, you know, without any sort of explanation, that was a little little difficult to sort of discover how I discovered it was when I went to produce my second app, I got this really strange warning when I tried to verify it. And it had something to do with, you know, using, using an, uh, 
not what's it called? Uh, Mark, you, you, I called you about that. It was um, like a reserved name or a reverse reserved method name or a method name that was already used by Apple somewhere. Oh, right, right. Oh, you were uh, overriding a, a, a private method. Yeah, something to that effect, right? And and then when I tried to submit the binary, you know, so I, I gave up on the verification and tried to submit the binary, and it gave me an error, and it, and it to, for all intents and purposes, it looked like I wasn't able to submit the app, right? So, and I, I kind of thought about it for a few minutes, and then I remembered that we have the application loader. So I went to application loader, downloaded the newest version of that, and I was able to upload the, the binary with the application loader. And instead of getting this, oh my God, you can't do this, kind of stop dead in your tracks the application loader just gave me the warning about the same thing and it actually gave me a bit more detail and i was able to um then i was able to to realize that i actually was able to submit the app to apple and then that was when i went back into itunes connect to make sure everything was okay and realized that that's where you had to choose the binary now and submit that binary but um it was just odd that this you know this and i and i had heard some other people complaining on on twitter and things like that about having issues with submitting apps so I guess you guys haven't tried to submit any apps with the latest version. I haven't no. yet. Not yet. No. I wonder if the I wonder if the need to choose the bundle that you're talking about is is related to the the new thing where you can have different versions for old versions of the phone. You think? I, I don't know. I, it makes sense to me because right right now it's to, to, in order to do that right. You go ahead, Ami. Ami. Sorry, it sounded I I hadn't heard Mark, and so I kind of cut over. Um. So I, I think that makes sense to me that they would, you know, redesign the UI uh, that way because um, in the current scheme, from what I recall, if you wanted to have a here is a version that's, you know, available for older phones or older operating systems, it's sort of weird. You go into, I think, manage rights and pricing or something of that nature. It's, mm-hmm. it's in a very non-intuitive place. Yeah, which is kind of my point about the whole iTunes Connect experience. Yep. Right. I'm not really concerned about it. I think it looks super, though. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, it definitely then, looks a whole then, lot better. Yeah, sure. it looks a lot better. But then you get into, like, we were just talking about rights and pricing. You get into that. Because I, I just actually happen to take all my apps off the market. Um, uh, so I actually do have some experience with it. And the, uh, the once you dig into an app and get into, say, the rights and pricing where you would take it off the store, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's unchanged. It's the same thing. Uh, so the UI hasn't changed there. Uh, so I, I think they're going to continue uh, digging into this this UI and updating it as time goes on. I wonder, actually, I'm just, I just stumbled across the test flight interface on here. And maybe that, I mean, two things. Maybe that's one reason why they changed it. And the second thing is uh, maybe that's why they're allowing you to have multiple builds. I don't think it has to do with being able to support older phones. You can have builds that are specifically for your, your test flight group, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, they they probably keep a record of all your test flight builds, and at some point in time, you should be able to just choose one that you want to actually submit without having to actually resubmit it to the store. Yeah, it makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, I think we're going to wrap up here and go around the table and see if anybody has any new technologies or new apps that they've uh, uncovered in the last little while. Um, uh, Aaron, do you have anything? Oh my God! See, here's the problem, right? iOS eight came out today, and with it, a whole raft of new apps with functionality, right? So mm-hmm. I've been trying out a bunch of things, and uh, I just want to raise the whole uh, keyboards thing. So mm-hmm. with the new keyboards in iOS, I've downloaded uh, the swipe keyboard and was able to give that a shot tonight. 
Uh, and I haven't gotten to the Swift keyboard yet, but uh, I'm about to do that later on. So that was fascinating. But the the big one that I want to bring up, and everybody should be using this, is uh, Transmit from Panic Software. Uh, that just came out for iOS today, and that's uh, a remote file manager. Like it's essentially, it used to be an FTP client, but it supports all kinds of different remote storage systems and Transmit is has been on the Mac for many 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 years. And right. Okay. It's, it's as old as OS X itself, and uh, now for the first time it's available for iOS. And the great thing about it is its extension support, which allows you to uh, to take an arbitrary file from pretty much anywhere in the OS and uh, push it to a remote file server. Oh, okay. So yeah, so finally we'll be able to upload, upload websites and what have you. Exactly, and uh, that's oh. that's going to open up a whole lot of use cases for iOS as a whole. And so this is a very exciting thing. Yeah, I had an app like that was uh, a text editor that was similar to that, but it had a sort of it had a way of uploading to remote servers using WebDAV or FTP or whatever. But it was a little clunky. Clunky was the word I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. So I, I am curious. I was going to ask about the the uh, if anybody had a chance to try the keyboards out. Can you sort of explain how they how those are implemented? Well, yeah. Um, so Swipe is actually an app that you install, and it appears in your Springboard just like any other app. But when you open it up, it actually doesn't really have much of any functionality. It's just instructions on how to how to turn on the keyboard. Right. So you it just says go to the settings app, the key uh, general keyboards, and then add the Swipe keyboard. So it must be using iOS 8 extensions, right? Uh, well, it's a, it's a special kind of extension, I guess. Uh, I'm not actually sure about the exact mechanism. but Actually, no, you're, you're right. I, was just, uh, I did have some notes on iOS 8 extensions, and, and custom keyboards is one of the types of extensions. Right. I'm just looking at my notes here. There you go. So, so. basically, uh, inside the app, you can bring up the keyboard and change it to the swipe keyboard uh, using that little globe in the bottom left corner of the keyboard. Right, and right. then uh, you can choose the U.S. English keyboard, which is the default, and you can also choose the swipe keyboard. And when you do that, the keyboard region goes clear gray, and then is replaced with the swipe keyboard. Um, oh. At that point, you can interact with it just like you could any swipe keyboard if you've ever seen it on Android. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's pretty slick, but you know what? Uh, I think I prefer typing. It's a uh. ninety nine cent purchase, so it's very easy to try. Uh, the swipe keyboard, uh, sorry, not swipe, uh, swift keyboard, swift key yeah. is free. Uh, Jaime, do you have anything to uh, introduce to the group? I do. And uh, this one's a game. It's called The Vector Project. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess a little bit of you know full disclosure here. Um, I, I, I work with the individual uh, who, who produced this game, uh, Jacob Alul. Um and so I kind of have a little bit of a, of a proud papa moment here because I've I've, I've, I've <laughs> beta tested so many different versions of this game and okay. uh, and helped him refine uh, not only the the design of the game but also the the technical aspects behind the scenes. Um, but in any case, it's a space shooter game. It's uh, got a top down view, sort of like Galaga if you've if you've played that. But it it plays a little bit more. Um, like R type, if you've ever played that old game, that that, that happens to be a side-scrolling game instead of top-down mm-hmm. like this one. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a bullet hell type of game where um, you are a spaceship and you are going uh, through these corridors and getting shot at from every which corner and direction, and it's got mini bosses and, and all sorts of cool things. So I just wanted to 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 put that one out there because that was released to the App Store uh, fairly recently. 
And do you, so, do you use an accelerometer to steer the ship through the through the gauntlet, or no? Actually, it's touch based. Mark, do you have anything new to add to the? Yeah, I've been playing a game called to... Unpossible. I think it's been around for a while, but uh, I just discovered it not too long ago because I happened to pick up a card at my my local neighborhood Seattle based coffee shop uh, that that let me download a copy for free. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. actually it's actually a quite fun game. Um, it's one of those. 3D flying games also, uh, and it reminds me a lot of, of, it's a modernized version of, of an old video game from way back when, and I can't remember exactly which one it was, but and maybe one of you guys remembers, but the idea is you're on this kind of spiraling tube, and you're, you're sitting on it, and you can either use the accelerometer or tap to, you rotate around the tube, 360 degrees all the way around the tube in either direction. And it's like, a, it's like from a first person perspective, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and this thing is it's twisting around in 3D, and there's all these obstacles that pop up in front of you. And you have to rotate around the the tube to to avoid them. And it's right. it's actually it's a, it's a pretty fun game. It's you know it's pretty it's one of these addicting games that you you, you play and 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 you crash and then okay I got to try one more time just to get past that point. No, I'm just saying nice graphics, nice sound. Uh, so it's it's pretty good. Cool. I have a couple of things to add. One is one left over from last week, and, and it has to do with a Toronto startup that uh, I read about in the paper a little while ago. So I downloaded their app uh, and stuck it on one of my older phones, and it's called Orchard App. And what it is is a service. Um, I think they have similar things like this in the States, but this is in, in Canada, only, unfortunately, um, where you you upload a, an, uh, an app to your phone, and it goes through a couple of tests, like it tests your volume keys and your... Um, camera front and back um, and it asks you to sort of give your, your idea of what the condition of your phone is in like whether it's scratched up or beat up or what have you and they so they have these tests that test the functionality and then they give you a ballpark price of what they will pay you and uh, to sell your phone and in light of people buying new phones maybe they have older equipment they want to get rid of and I was actually surprised when I ran it on my older phone um, that it actually does, it did actually give a, a better price than I thought my phone was actually worth, right? Um, and the, I, the service behind it is, you know, you, when you sign up for it, they send you a box, you put your phone in the box and you send it to them. They take care of, of the sale to the other, the, to the interested party on the other side. But, uh, so from that, from a convenience point of view, I thought it was a kind of a cool service and, and I put it up on Twitter last week and, a couple of people I know Far- Farley tried it, and, and Aaron, you tried it as well. Kind of had an unfortunate experience with it, yeah. Yeah. Um, what was your? Well, okay. So I put uh, I've got an iPhone five, and I it's I had it unlocked a couple of years ago. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the price that it gave me was uh, under the assumption that it was still locked to Telus, and right. So I wrote to them and I said, "Listen, I I think it's just misinterpreted," and he wrote back really quick, uh, which yeah. was to his credit. Um, yep. He said that if you send it in, uh, we'll prove that it's unlocked and we'll uh, adjust the price. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, I'd sure love to know what that price would be. Uh, mm. Never heard back. And then later on, it turns out that you can sell an iPhone 4 or above with them. So I actually have my old iPhone 4, mm-hmm. and I thought I'd give it a whirl and see how much I'd get for it. But despite the fact that my iPhone 4 is actually in pristine condition, the thing is so mm. mint, uh, mm. even now. Uh, and everything works. Never drop the thing. It was it was a lucky device. Uh, but having run through the process, it says, "Yeah, we'll give you twenty five bucks for it because it's damaged." What? Yeah, I don't know. It's just damaged. 
Wow. So I wrote again and I said, listen, this thing thinks I'm, my phone's damaged. It is not damaged. It's perfect. And I haven't heard back. Yeah, well, I, I think I, I think I did encourage you to contact the support when I heard your first story, but um, they're they're offering three hundred dollars for my iPhone 4s, which you know basically just sits in a drawer and I use it to test iOS eight and stuff like that, right? And have a small screen to test it on. Um, anyway, so I just thought I put I put Orchard out there as something from Canada that we're trying to do for people as well. Um, but I also did quickly just wanted to sort of throw out too that um, one of the things I'm fascinated with is augmented reality and virtual reality and stuff like that as well. And I just recently heard about a new product. I think it was announced yesterday. It's a Kickstarter campaign for a product called Air VR. And what it is, it's kind of like the Ocular Rift um, headset you can get or you will be able to get. But you, you essentially put your iPad mini on this thing and it's a set of goggles and then you feed it and the whole thing... It's, I think it's good for the developer community because it will allow us developers to create 3D environments that people can then enter into either like, you know, by f- uh, photographing real environments in stereo or by having games and what have you that people would then play in stereo. But the idea behind it is it sits right over top of your head and you put the headphones in and you can immerse yourself inside a, a stereoscopic image and, you know, experience what it's like to be in some place and it's it's a quick kickstarter campaign called air vr and like i said i just heard about it the other day but i haven't heard uh anybody uh, other than you know people speculating on what they think it's going to be but it, it looks kind of cool you know and i think with an ipad mini with retina it might be kind of neat and actually of course they're also going to build one for the ipad iphone 6 plus there you have it Okay, so I think that's it for the week. And um, Aaron, where can people find you? Usual spots, aaron.vay.ca on Twitter, at Aaron Vay. And that is it. I am done. And Mark, are you going to be back in Los Angeles or in San Jose to be able to pick up your phone? Yeah, good question. <laughs> but in case people wanted to find you on the electronic interwebs, where would they find you? Uh, com or at Smapsoft on Twitter or... Mark R at smapsoft.com. And Jaime, where can people find you in Seattle? Devwithahair.com and on Twitter and ADN as at Devwithahair. And once again, I'm Tim Mitra and I'm here in Toronto, Ontario. Um, I host the website where this blog, where this podcast is housed and it's www.itguy.com. I'm also Tim Mitra on Twitter and that other app.net thing. Uh, so that's at T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A. Um, and that's it. We'll say goodbye for now, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Everybody, say goodbye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye. Bye and die. Bye, Mac. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code podcast page on the IT Guy website at www.it-guy.com. There, you can find show notes and a summary of each episode. We also list links to items we talk about on the show, and there are links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, you can also leave us a comment on the website. Also, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. And if you follow us on Twitter, you can always retweet our tweets about the show. Thanks. Thanks.